thankful for this, uh, this precious opportunity God's given us to meet together here in his house where we thoroughly enjoyed the song service. Very much appreciate the prayer that was offered by our, our brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would ask that each one of you would, would pray for us during this time that we would stand before you. In the book of Job, chapter 22 and verse 21, we read the words of, of Eliphaz, the Temanite, who is one of Job's miserable comforters. And even though these words did not have application with Job, they're words of truth. When he said, acquaint thyself with him and be at peace. These words teach us that the more we know about the Lord, the more peace we can experience here in this life. By the truth of scripture, we're looking for a land where we'll be in peace. We'll be in peace forever and ever and ever with the Lord. But until then, we're dwelling in this land, and in this land, there's a lot of turmoil, tribulation, and, and problems. In those turmoil, tribulation, and problems, we, the children of God, we, we long for peace. Often, we don't know where to find peace, but there is peace that can be found in this world, and that peace is in the knowledge and fellowship with our Lord and Savior. Last Sunday, we looked at the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised Son. If God would be our helper this morning, I'd like for us to consider the Lord Jesus Christ the substitutionary Lamb. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I trust that you do. The house of God's a good place to bring your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And you may be questioning in your mind, Brother Ronnie, if you're going to speak about the Lord, the substitutionary lamb, why are you starting in Isaiah chapter 53? That was written a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. How, how do I know this? If you go read Romans chapter 10 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul, he quotes from this chapter in God's holy word. And points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you recall in Matthew chapter 8. When it was Peter's wife's mother that lay sick. Which teaches us that Peter had a wife. Peter's wife's mother lay sick. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that came and healed her. Isaiah chapter 53 was quoted. In Matthew chapter 8. And was applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you recall in Acts chapter 8. When Philip went to that strip in Gaza and joined himself with the, the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and he asked Philip, of whom did the prophet write himself or another? And the Bible says that Philip began in that same scripture, the scripture in Isaiah chapter 53, and taught the Ethiopian eunuch about the Lord Jesus Christ. So this chapter in God's holy word, even though written many years before the Lord, came into the world, it is about, about him, our Savior and our Redeemer. And this chapter is about him being our substitute, him taking our place. What does the word substitute mean? It means for one to take the place of another. You know, when I hear the word substitute, I think about a substitute teacher in school. What does that mean? That means one teacher would take the place of another. Believe it or not, there was a time in world history when if a man was drafted to go to war for a country, if he had the financial ability, he could actually pay another 
to be his substitute during that time of war. And we consider the Lord Jesus Christ being our substitute, taking our place. This is illustrated for us in many places in Scripture. Let's consider Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, if you remember, during the plagues, it would be upon Egypt. The last plague was the plague of death. Now, each one of those plagues were showing the inabilities of the gods of Egypt. But they were showing the power and omnipotence of, of God. And the last one was, was death. And the Lord gave a provision to the children of Israel. And that provision was concerning a Passover lamb. They would take that lamb. The lamb would be killed. And the blood of that lamb would be placed upon the lintel and the side doorpost. And where God saw that blood, he would pass over. And no death would be in that house. If you'll read Exodus Chapter 12 and verse 4, that lamb was offered for that house. What does that mean? That means concerning death, the lamb experienced the death, but no one in the house did. The lamb was the substitute of that death for an house. If you recall in Genesis chapter 22, in Genesis chapter 22, it was God that tempted Abraham and the word tempt there is not meaning being tempted with sin. It means he was tried by the Lord. And that trial was concerning offering his son upon a mountain that he would tell them of. And Abraham took that journey and he came to that mountain willing and being perfectly ready to offer his son. It was the angel of the Lord that stayed his hand. And Abraham looked behind him and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by the horns, and the Bible says that he offered that ram in the stead of his son Isaac. What does that mean? That means the ram was Isaac's substitute. It took his place. The ram died, and Isaac went home with his daddy that day. If you've read through the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus outlines for us the ceremonial laws that were given to the Levitical priesthood, by Moses, given to him by God in the mount when he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. The first seven chapters gives us five offerings that the ceremonial law required. You had burnt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, trespass offerings, and sin offerings. In every one of those offerings, there was an animal that was slain in the room in substitute of the sin that was committed in the substitute of the guilty. What substitute means is when one takes another's place. And you would ask, Brother Ronnie, why did we need a substitute? What was the purpose of there being a substitute in our room instead? The reason we needed a substitute to take our room instead to answer to God is we had nothing to offer to God for the sin we have committed. See, man is not able to approach the throne of God. Man is not able to stand before God. Man is guilty in everything in opposition to God. A matter of fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 says, Carnal man, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Before the throne of God, God requires perfection. God requires holiness. God requires righteousness. Dear children of God, do you not understand the Bible teaches us that for us to stand before God, to embrace God, for God to embrace us, we will have to be perfect and holy and righteous in 
his sight. Have you ever read Psalms chapter 15, verse 1 and 2? Psalms chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Who shall dwell in his tabernacle? And who shall abide in his holy hill? Who's going to be able to be there? Who's going to be able to stand before God? It's going to have to be the person that walketh uprightly, that worketh righteousness, and whose mouth, his tongue, speaketh truth in his heart. I have done none of those things. Can you look back in your life and see that you've walked uprightly your entire life? Can you look back in your life to see that you've worked righteousness, done right every time in your life? Can you look back in your life and see with your heart, with your lips, you spoke the right things every time? I mean, my dad used to tell me us milks come out of the womb knowing how to lie. My dad and mom had to teach me to tell the truth. I have not done those things. Therefore, of myself, I cannot stand before God. Psalms chapter 24, verse 3 and 4. What does the Lord require of us? Who shall ascend into heaven? Who shall stand before his holy hill? But he that hath clean heart, clean hands, and a pure heart, that hath not spoken vanity, nor lifted up his soul unto vanity. For us to be in the sight of God, we will have to be perfect. But the Bible teaches us, and we know by our own experience, we're not perfect. Without the Lord in us, there's none of us that do good, no, not one. The Bible says that we, without God, we're polluted. We're polluted with sin. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 4 through 6, teaches us that we're, we're polluted with sin. What that means is we're contaminated by sin. Man has been contaminated by sin and is not perfect. Man, according to Psalms chapter 14 and verse 2, we're, we're corrupt. We're corrupt. How could corruption be considered perfection? It is not. According to Scripture, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, we're transgressors. What is a transgressor? It's one who in his actions has gone beyond the parameters of the law. We're transgressors. We're sinners. We're ungodly. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. We're ungodly before him. There's nothing about us in our works that are, that's good, and by our own works, we have no way to remedy ourselves. Do you know the Bible teaches in our own ability, there's no way for us to remedy ourselves in the sight of God? How many times in the Bible can you remember the Lord saying, there's none that doeth good, and to make sure we get the point, no, not, not one. Well, brother, don't we just have to do something good to remedy ourselves in this problem we have before God, show me a person that's able to do good without the Lord being in them. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 declares unto us, there's none that does good. Psalms chapter 14, 1 through 3. Psalms chapter 53, 1 through 3. Even Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 21, there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We have no ability to remedy ourselves, to fix ourselves in the sight of God. But God, before the foundation of the world, loved his people. But his people in sin cannot stand before him. Why? Because we're in sin and we can't fix ourselves. So what has to happen? God would provide a substitute. The Lord is holy. The Lord is righteous. The Lord demands righteousness. God is a righteous judge in heaven. God is not a judge in heaven that would sweep sin under a rug. 
If you recall in Exodus chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, as well as Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, God by no means will clear the guilty. Brothers and sisters, we're not going to stand before God one day and God know all about us and our sins and God say, well, look, you know, we're going to sweep this one under a rug. God is not going to take a bribe and we have nothing to offer to God to bribe him. He owns all things. See, the rich can't pay himself out of the guilt. The man who has physical ability can't work himself out of the guilt. God is no, by no means going to clear the guilty. Now, we have judges in this world, unjust judges, that will sweep sin under a rug and declare the person in his courtroom to be right when he's not. Happens all the time. For money, bribery, some type of influence, some type of help, they'll sweep it under a rug. That will not work with God. God by no means will clear the guilty. God will not sweep sin under a rug. Well, if we're guilty before God, God loves us. And there's any hope of us standing before God in righteousness, in holiness, embracing God and Him embracing us, the only way that is possible is if we have a substitute to take our place. Jesus Christ is that substitute. The substitutionary lamb that came into the world. He is our Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He is our sacrifice that took our place. He is the one. He is the righteous that took the place of the guilty on the cross. What that means is all the judgment that was due us, the family of God, because we've sinned against God. Jesus Christ suffered that judgment in our room and Stead. And praise God, he satisfied the judgment seat completely. Have you ever read through these 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 53 and noticed every time we, we see a substitute? Yeah, I remember a time I read through this chapter and I saw nine substitutions. Then I saw 10, 11. I'm up to 12 right now. Read this with me, these 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 53, and notice the times we read that Jesus Christ was our substitute, that he took our place. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. There's one. And carried our sorrows. There's two. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, there's three. He was bruised for our iniquities, there's four. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, that's five. And with his stripes we are healed, there's six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, there's seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who should declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, 
And for the transgression of my people was he stricken. There's eight. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. There's nine. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. There's ten. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured his soul out unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, he hath borne the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Just the last verse, few words of that verse teaches us two more. That's 12, 12 times. In this chapter, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ took our place. You know, for one to take our place, it will have to be one that's qualified and willing to take our place. For one to take our place, in judgment, for one to take our place in answering for our guilt, it'll have to be one accepted with God. See, that's why none of us could offer in another stead. Someone would say, Brother Ronnie, could you do this in my stead? I cannot. I'm just as guilty as you. The guilty can't offer in the guilty stead. It will have to take one that is righteous. One that is perfect, one that's accepted before God's judgment seat to take our place. There's a verse of scripture found in Psalms chapter 40 and verse 6. And this verse is telling us about the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And how those offerings in the Old Testament were part of their service in their fellowship with God. But none of those offerings in the Old Testament satisfied the eternal judgment seat of the Father. All those offerings did was point to the one that would come into the world to satisfy the judgment seat of the Father. Turn with me to Psalms chapter 40 and verse 6. And this portion of Scripture is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 10. Notice in verse 6, it declares in Psalm chapter 40, or the 40th Psalm, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. And I want you to hold on to those words for a, for a future effort from the pulpit. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Those offerings and sacrifices from the first until the last that was offered in the temple did not satisfy the eternal judgment seat of the Father. But what does it say in verse 7? Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. We had nothing to offer. No one could offer in another stead. But because God loves us, his son, that's acceptable in his sight, that's righteous, perfect, and holy, came into this world to take our place. And when he came into the world, 
He manifested his perfection by the way he lived. You know, when he was examined by Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate said these words, I could find in him no fault at all. Now, I'm guessing Pontius Pilate knew how to examine a criminal. He had done it before, but after a long examination, even Pontius Pilate said of the Lord Jesus Christ, I find in him no fault at all. You remember when Jesus Christ was baptized of John in Matthew chapter 3, the voice was heard from heaven. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, when Peter and James and John were there with him and he was transfigured before them, and his raiment was so white, no fuller could white them. What is that saying? That, that's saying you couldn't wash his clothes with Clorox and be any whiter than he appeared that day. His face shined as the sun, and a voice was heard from heaven, This is my son, hear ye him. And everything that Jesus did, he was accepted by the Father. And those things he did only manifest his holiness. What he did did not make him holy. He was holy when he came into the world. He was born of a virgin. And he was holy his entire life from the cradle to the cross, from start to finish, beginning to end, Jesus Christ. is perfection and holy. And just hours before he would go to the cross, in John chapter 17, the Bible said he would pray and lift up his eyes to heaven. That's an amazing text. Why is that so amazing, Brother Ronnie? Because we as sinners are not able to lift up our eyes to heaven. Remember in Luke chapter 18, the publican, he wouldn't so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote his breast and God be merciful to be a sinner. We can't go at God in the eyes. Mm -mm, we're guilty. But Jesus Christ had no issue, no problem looking the Father right in the eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, you've heard me talk about my daddy. My daddy is Elder Marvin Loudermilk, and I'll tell you, my daddy believed in discipline. I've said this before from the pulpit, and some people thought I was kidding, but I wasn't kidding. My daddy believed in discipline. My daddy used to give me just practice whippings just to make sure he still knew how to do it. <laughs> and I want to tell you, a lot of those, I deserved a lot more than I, I got. You know, I remember when I got older, I was fishing with daddy on a lake, and, and daddy began to talk to me about all that, you know, we went through. And, and my raising, he said, you know, he said, Ronnie, he said, I, I, was, I was probably just too hard on you. He said, uh, there's a lot of whippings you got. I, I probably could have taken it a little easier on you. And I said, well, I said, Daddy, let me tell you about some things I did you don't know about. <laughs> so I began to tell Daddy about some things I did he didn't know about. By the time we were finished, he was ready to give me another whipping. <laughs> but you know, when I did wrong, I couldn't walk in the house and look my daddy in the face. <laughs> my head would hang low. But now if I'd done right, and I had no reason to be ashamed, I can look my daddy right in the eyes and say, Daddy, it, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. I remember once my mama went on the back porch and threw some tomatoes off the back porch on daddy's freshly washed truck. It was in the night and she didn't know his truck was back there. She just covered his truck with old rotten tomatoes. And daddy got up the next morning. He thought David and I had been throwing tomatoes and threw them all over his truck. And he come in there and boy, he was going to settle the score. And I looked him in the face. I said, Daddy, I, I didn't do it. Now, I got a lot of help from Mama that day convincing him. But I think somehow me looking him in the face, he understood. I, I think Ronnie's telling me the truth. Now, my Mama never did confess to doing that. <laughs> yes, I looked him in the face. John chapter 17, Jesus Christ, he's done no wrong. 
He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays to the Father. Yes, Jesus Christ is a qualified and a willing substitution. And when Jesus Christ, when he came into this world and went to the cross, everything that he suffered on the cross, all that he suffered in the crucifixion, was not because of any wrong that he did, but because of our wrong. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what Jesus did on the cross in the crucifixion, he did not suffer that because of any wrong that he had done, but he suffered that in his love for us and suffering our wrongs and our, our guilt. I, mean, I know many of you reading through the Bible, you've already read Genesis chapter 3. How many times have you read Genesis chapter 3? Have you ever noticed in the end of Genesis chapter 3 everything that sin brought into the world? And just thought about how Jesus Christ, all those things that came with sin, he suffered in his crucifixion. Turn there with me to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins against God. God had told Adam not to eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. The devil comes as a serpent, and Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived, and he ate with her, with her. That means they ate at the same time. Eve didn't eat and fall, and then Adam ate and fall after her. No, they fell at the same time. We're all represented in Adam, not in Eve. And Adam tried to blame his wife. And Eve tried to blame the serpent. And so it's still going on today. No one wants to be responsible for their own wrongdoings. We're going to blame someone else. But Adam sinned against God. When he sinned against God, sin came into the world and we were all in Adam. Therefore, we all became sinners at the same, same time. We were all in Adam. On the sixth day when God finished creation, it was done. We were all in Adam. We all became guilty before God in Adam. And when sin entered into the world, there was things associated with that. But if you'll notice from verse 15 to the end of the chapter in Genesis chapter 3, everything that was associated with sin that came into the world, Jesus suffered all of those things, took our place and our room instead in his crucifixion and death. Notice verse 15. The Lord speaks to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Sin brought bruises in the world. Because of sin, there's bruises. And we read the text there in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 about him being bruised for our iniquities. Jesus Christ was bruised. Not because of anything that he had done, but because of our sin. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 12, his visage was so marred more than any man, 
and his form more than the sons of men. They beat Jesus and beat Jesus and beat Jesus to the point that you couldn't recognize him. Why was he bruised? Why did Jesus suffer those bruises? Do you realize he had power to call down 12 legions of angels? He had power to stop it. Why did he suffer those bruises? Because he was taking our place. Because of his great love for you. Jesus is our substitute. Verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. I heard a person once say God was merciful in that. He could have said a Roman soldier, but he said, no, thy husband that loves you. But notice in that verse 16, sin brought sorrow, sorrow. There was no sorrow in the world before sin. Not only did sin bring bruises, sin brought, brought sorrow, brought sadness. Again, back to Isaiah chapter 53, our sorrows, it makes reference. He bore our sorrows. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he's righteous and holy and perfect. But the sorrow of sin, he took it upon himself. You remember when he was there in the garden? And the Bible says his, his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Can you imagine the weight of the sorrow that Jesus Christ bore that night before the next day he would die on the cross? Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. Have you ever laid your head down at night and felt the guilt of your own sin? Have you ever laid down your head on your pillow at night and struggled going to sleep because of the wrongs that you had done that day? Have you ever had a time in your life where you had done so much wrong that you woke up in the morning remembering you looked yourself in the mirror and you just you couldn't look? I can't believe I'd done such a thing. You know, David says that in Psalms chapter 40 and verse 12. Innumerable evils have compassed me about. My iniquity has taken hold on me so that I'm not able to look up. They're more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. I've done so much wrong. I can't look myself in the mirror. But you know, those are just your wrongs. Your wrongs. Those wrongs are just my wrongs. Me. One person. Jesus was bearing the sorrow of the entire elect family of God, an innumerable host out of every kindred and tongue, people and nation, sin brought sorrow. But Jesus Christ bore all of our sorrow in his crucifixion and death. Verse 17, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Sin brought forth a curse. A curse. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of law being made a curse for us. The curse that sin brought into the world, Jesus bore the curse. He was rejected of men. Verse 18. We'll continue in verse 17. Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Now verse 18. Thorns also and thistles. 
shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Thorns and thistles come into the world because of sin. Have you ever noticed you've never had to plant thorns and thistles? Anyone ever had to work hard to get briars in your yard? I remember Elder J.R. Rates in Virginia told me once he had a barn, and he said that barn had been there for so long, he said it's about to fall apart. He said, I just tore it all down. He said there was some ground there. He said nothing had been there for years and years. He said it was just a plain piece of ground. He said, wow, that's going to be a great place for a garden. We'll just wait until season comes around, and we'll plant a garden because there ain't been no thorns or thistles there. You don't have to worry about no thorns and thistles. Nothing been there. He said, you know, I came back just a few weeks. He said it was just briars all over the place. You don't have to plant briars. You don't have to plant thorns. They just come up, right? Why do we have thorns and thistles in the world? Because, because of sin. What did they put upon the head of Jesus Christ? It was a crown of thorns. In mocking him, they placed a crown of thorns on his head and they took a reed and they beat it down into his scalp. Jesus Christ suffered the thorns and thistles that sin brought into the world. Next verse, verse 19. In sweat, in the sweat of thy face. Notice it doesn't say in the sweat of thy brow. It says, in the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shall thou return. Sin brought sweat. You know, Adam didn't have to do much sweat before sin entered the world. He was in a garden. Life was good. He's got Eve there, there in a garden just to keep it and to dress it. Life was, was good. It was just there. God made him a mature tree. See, that's why these modern carbon dating systems, they're, they're not accurate. They work. See, when the Lord made the earth, the heavens and earth were of old. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. God makes a tree. The next day, they go up to it and they pop it. Oh, that, that tree is 40 years old. No, Adam says, no, God made that yesterday. He told me. It's only 24 hours old. See, the carbon dating system will not work. That's the reason it's always off. I had a man come to me once when I was working in a little hardware store there in Georgia. He said, uh, Ronnie, he said, don't you see a rock I've got? This, this rock I've got is, is 2.5 billion years old. I said, no, it's not. He said, it's not. He said, how do you know? I said, I know, I know it's not. He said, well, I had it tested. I said, how many times did they test that rock for you? He said, oh, three times. I said, well, what, how did those tests come back? He said, well, the first time it was 1.1 million years, then 2.5 billion years. He said, the third time was way up in the trillion years. He said, but I, I knew that wasn't accurate. I said, have you noticed the inaccuracy of this test? I said, we're not talking about barely missing a mark here. We're talking about like trillions and billions of years. I said, this, this test was not accurate. Well, how old do you think this rock is? I said, about 6,000 years old. If you read scripture and you follow through scripture, the world's a little over 6,000 years old. God made a mature earth. Adam went to the garden and he ate of the garden that God had made. But after sin entered the world, from that point forward, he had lived by the sweat of his face. Do you remember Jesus Christ when he was in the garden? And he prayed and his soul being in agony. Do you know the angels of the Lord came and ministered unto him because of the agony of that night? The weight of what he would do, answering in our room instead to the Father the next day, the agony of that. Angels came and ministered unto him, and he prayed to the Father, and he prayed, 
and his sweat became as it were. Didn't say his sweat became blood. His sweat became as it were. Great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't know about you, but that, that sounds like some serious sweating to me. Jesus Christ sweat the sweat that sin brought into the world. Jesus Christ suffered that for us. Notice in verse 24, God would put a flaming sword in the way of the garden. No man could enter there back in. According to Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7, when Jesus Christ suffered on the cross, there was a sword that was awakened. It was the sword of judgment. And that sword of judgment that came into the world because of sin, Jesus Christ suffered that sword in his death on the cross of Calvary. Because of sin, we have a separation. Adam and Eve are now separated from that fellowship that they once had with the Lord. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ that suffered that separation that sin brought when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And because he was separated, because he suffered the separation, Praise God, we will never be separated because He was our substitute in His crucifixion and death. He took our place. The righteous suffered for the guilty. The right suffered for the wrong. The holy suffered for sinners like you and I. And praise God, I want you to leave this place believing and having assurance that Jesus did that for you. If you have guilt of sin in your heart, Praise God, you can shout hallelujah. Jesus took your place. If you have in your heart a longing to have something better than this world, it's evidence that Jesus has took your place. If you in your mind, the devil troubles you in your mind with past wrongs. If you have a struggle going to sleep at night, it's evidence that Jesus took your place. He was your substitute because he took your place because he was your substitute. He satisfied the Father in everything that He did for you. What that means is now before the eternal judgment seat of the Father, we stand because He took our place without fault and without blame. Whether we know about it, whether we believe it, whether we informed about it or not, Jesus Christ took His children's place in all those things of sin that came into the world because of Adam's transgression. For his people, all those things, Jesus Christ suffered them all. What does that mean, Brother Ronnie? That means right now in the sight of God, we're perfect. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You can't get any better than perfect. You know, there's nothing in this world that's perfect. Someone says, I tell you what, my wife and I put the plans together and we built a house and this is perfect. Okay, let's take a marble in some of these rooms and see if it rolls around. Let's see how perfect it is. No, it's not perfect. Well, I was doing some crafts the other day, and I tell you what, those crafts, they were they were they were perfect. Well, you do a little checking, you'll find out they're they're not so so perfect. I tell you what, I go sometimes to see Sister Jackie, and Sister Jackie give me a really good haircut. I tell Sister Jackie, people come to me and say, you got a new haircut, Brother Ronnie. Everybody always notices it when Sister Jackie gives me a haircut. But Sister Jackie, you've never given me a perfect haircut. Now, I don't look for the faults. <laughs> I don't anybody think I stand in the mirror and look for the faults, Sister Jackie. <laughs> but there'll be something wrong with everything that we, we, we do. I mean, you get a brand new car. This car is perfect. No, it's not perfect. Man can't do anything perfect. Nothing is perfect in this world. 
Now, I want to tell you, the Lord gave us His church perfect because the church is not of the world, it's of God. But we, the children of God, because of what Jesus Christ done for us before the Father, we're perfect. There's nothing wrong with us. What that means is when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a big screen TV up there that says, hey, I remember you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. No, Jesus, he made, made you perfect. According to Zacharias chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus made you right before God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Have you been right all your life? Now, I talked to a man once. He said, I was only wrong one time, and that's when I thought I was wrong. And I think he was, he was pulling my leg. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not always right. No, we're often wrong. But because Jesus Christ suffered all of our wrongs now before the Father, right. Because Jesus Christ suffered in our room instead, now we who are nobodies are now somebody in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 the Apostle Paul said, for this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty ye might be made rich. I asked a man once, I said, could you illustrate that text for me? He said, Brother Ronnie, it's kind of like this. He said, we all want to be somebody. Everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants their name in lights. Everybody wants their name on their jersey. Everybody likes to see their name in the newspaper or some of their relatives. Everybody wants to be somebody. But the truth is, we're all just a bunch of nobodies. We're all just a bunch of nobodies. This text is not about a nobody. This verse of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 is about a somebody. No, it's not. It's about the somebody. The somebody that came into this world and became a nobody. That you would be somebody in him. You know, when I think about what Jesus done for me. And him taking my place. I'm reminded of a story I was told when I was younger. It was about what was called a whipping boy in old kingdoms. You know, a man that was a king that would have a son, that son being noble, that son being the son of the king, no man could lay hands on that son. But sons are not always obedient. But when the son was disobedient, they would go out into the streets and they'd find an orphan, an orphan boy, and they would bring that orphan boy into that kingdom and he'd be called the whipping boy. And when that son of the king would do wrong... They would take the whipping boy and whip him in the sight of the prince so he would know his wrongs. Now that breaks my heart. But when I think about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not an orphan. No, it's the prince of Israel who came into this world and was whipped for an ungodly orphan like me. And I don't know how to thank him enough for what he did. I just know in my life, I want to live my life in such a way that he would know that I thank him for taking my place, that the suffering that I deserve, the hell that I deserve, Jesus Christ suffered on the cross of Calvary, the separation I deserve from God forever. I thank him for taking my place and giving me this hope that I have that there's coming a day 
that I'll get to heaven and I won't meet the judgment of God, but his hand has been turned on me so that now I will see the welcoming hands of the Father and I can hug his neck and he will hug mine and I can lay my head in his bosom all because Jesus took my place. May God richly bless you as our prayer. Is anyone here this morning and you believe Jesus took your place and you want to live a life of obedience to him, you want to tell the world that you thank God that he has saved you from your sins. He saved you from the judgment that you deserve. 